This place is special. Get asked all the time, where's your favorite place to take college game day? And I say every time, Eugene, Oregon. Yeah. This is the best crowd. Honestly, it's six in the morning here. Yeah. It's dark. Yeah. It's raining. They don't care. <laughs> These fans right here, pound for pound, are as good as any college football fans in the country. This program is staged to compete and to win championships. Oregon is going to be in the championship game. Can you believe the magical season this has become? When we watch this film, does our effort beat theirs? Here's Bo Nix. Guns been making deposits. Time to cash a check. Sound at Austin, which is deafening for an Oregon 15-point win. Chip Kelly still does not have a win against his former school, and we say farewell. Man, it feels great to be a duck. Welcome to the QB11 Show, presented by Scoop Duck, with Doug, Andrew, and J-Hop. Here are the guys with the latest scoop. Hello and welcome back one more time to the QB11 show presented by Scoop Duck. I am Doug Scott and I'm joined by Andrew, Mr. QB11. Good evening, sir. Good evening. One last time. Is this our last episode? You're not, are you not telling me something? No, no. Did I say that? I didn't mean that. No, no, no. Yeah, like, no. It's, it's, <laughs> no, but you know, it's 12 games are already gone, QB. You know, these precious, precious games and we're, the regular season's over. The postseason's here. I'm excited about all the football that's that's still to come for Oregon um, and the college football season. But it is, you know, you're starting to go like, man, there's not that many more games. No, there's really not. Um, but I tell you what, like if you're going to poke your head at the end of, up at the end of twelve, and you look up at the board and you're eleven and one in the Pac-12 title game um, with a chance to redeem your only loss and compete for for a playoff spot. Uh, and your quarterback is leading the Heisman race with the guy who's in second place sitting at home next week. Uh, that that's about all you can ask for, right? I mean, you guess you could ask for twelve and zero, but um, that's a that's a really really successful season, and that's a very good position to find yourself in. So um, while while it's sad that we're not in week four and we don't have tons and tons of games in front of us still, uh, I I could not be more excited about the position that we're in going forward and, and the games that are coming um, are going to be some of the biggest, most impactful and exciting games in program history. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's, before we get into this Beaver game and looking ahead, cause I definitely, we're definitely gonna do a lot of that. I mean, just think about through this 12 game regular season. And this is one of obviously 11 and one, one of the best uh, regular seasons in Oregon football history. Uh, they've only beaten this one other time. They were 12-0 in 2010. But just not only from the the win-loss record, but just from, like, the enjoyment, the enjoyability of watching the season. And is that a word? I don't know. I made it up. Um, you know, where does this rank in terms of, you know, just from a fan perspective and just, like, watching the season 1 through 12? It's, it's you know, I'm thinking back to all the seasons I've watched, and it's probably in the top three of seasons that I've obviously you got to finish it right but just just talking regular season only it's probably one of the three most enjoyable seasons for me I mean 2010 obviously was up there this season I probably would put 2012 in there outside of obviously the loss to Stanford those were all like 2014 to me 
as awesome as it was, I'll, the, the thing I remember the most about that season is just always being stressed out <laughs> uh, because it just like it felt like, especially after the, the early loss to Arizona, wow. it just felt like every week I was just like, we can't lose, we can't lose, we can't lose. And, and I, you know, I didn't feel that way this season. So I, I don't know, like, maybe I found this season a little more enjoyable than that one, which is splitting hairs probably. Yeah, um, I think this is probably the most I've enjoyed a season. 2010 was fun. It was such a new experience, right? Uh, I think the run that we were on in 2007 was probably the most pure enjoyable experience because none of us had the expectation of what that run was going to be. I think that was the thing about 2014 is there was so much pent-up pressure because of the letdown that 2013 was. Uh, 2012 was a fun, fun season until that Stanford game. Um, I mean, the interesting thing is that had we had the format we have now then, we would have rematched with Stanford in the Pac-12 title uh, and probably been able to work our way back into the BCS title game in 2012. And if we yeah. had the format we had then now, we very we would um, be locked out of the Pac-12 title game. Uh, and they would in, in Washington would be playing Arizona. So um, I, I would be sitting I, in the situation that Ohio State's in, right? Like you're sitting home 11 and one and hoping to catch a break on conference title game. I, I, you know, I've been, I've come full circle on the 14 playoff. I hated the BCS. I felt like there was too many times teams got robbed, uh, you know, Oregon, you know, being one of those a couple of times. Um, or not robbed, but, you know, kind of, well, certainly robbed in 2001. Like that was a travesty um, in 2012, you know, maybe not robbed, but you definitely felt like one of the best two teams wasn't in that game that year. Um, and the four, so I welcomed the four team playoff era and I liked it for the first half of, you know, for the first five or six years. And I thought it was an improvement, but I kind of, I went from a, ardent never expand person to the opposite over the last probably three years, because I just felt like, you know, the, 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 the margin for error is so slim for some teams, but not others who seem to always have a mulligan and you have this inequitable scheduling that college football has. And I've always felt like, well, how do you know, how do you know you're, you have five, five major conferences and at most only four of their champions can play. And with very little out of conference play, especially between the teams at the top, like how do you know that you're just, it's just some person picking it's an invitational. And that, that kind of finally turned my head and turned me around to the, like, let's just, let's get, you know, I didn't like, I never liked the idea of six. I didn't like the, I liked eight for a while, but I'm actually really fond of the 12 team format now. And I'm excited to enter that era because it just feels like, you know, you're going to have to run the gauntlet to win, but you're, you're also not going to, there's never going to be a, well, if this team didn't lose by a field goal on the last play of the game, maybe they were the best team and we'll just never know. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think it'll be fun. And I think that um, the consolation prize to where if you're not in the top four in the new format, uh, and you don't get that bye week, but at least you get to host a game at your home your home field. Um, like especially in a season like this, where and this is a unique season, and I don't think that we're going to have this too often, where you have really turn quarterback turnover at all of the perennial powers. 
uh, and, and quarterback turnover in a way that really kind of evens the playing field, I would say. Because outside of Georgia, right. like Ohio State downgraded substantially at quarterback. Alabama downgraded substantially at quarterback. Um, it, it's created an opportunity for these other really quality teams, really talented teams with veteran quarterbacks that are probably a tier below what those schools have had recently and with like top 10 first round draft picks um, where there's kind of a new level of parity um, where you probably have legitimately eight teams, seven or eight teams that uh, on any given day can beat any of the other seven or eight teams. And, and then that just creates this, in my opinion, like truly exceptional opportunity for the games that like are why we love this sport. Right. Um, so I, I'm, I'm excited about the 12-team playoff. I used to be a very ardent state at four guy myself because I've, I've, I've long um, subscribed to the opinion that the, the difference between the top three or four teams and the, the teams five through 12 is so massive that they could never produce a, a quality game. Um, and why that might still be true on a yearly basis, I do think you'll get off years like this where – there legitimately are six, seven, eight, nine teams uh, that can really compete. That doesn't mean that there's six, seven, eight, nine teams that could win championships, but that could produce quality competitive games uh, and, and possibly upset somebody. So um, I, I think that the uh, advent of NIL, uh, I think the transfer portal has created an environment where it's harder to hoard as much talent on one or two teams um, that was happening in the early 14 playoff era when like those Alabama teams would just throttle everybody. Yeah. Yeah. It, it feels like even the, even the creation of, I mean, all you said, like NIL transfer portal obviously have helped, uh, you know, kind of maybe spread some of the talent around, but I think even just the advent of the 12 team playoff will help that as well. Right. Cause now people know, like, I don't have to go to one of these three schools to make a playoff um, and potentially, you know, accomplished my goals as a, as a player. So we'll see how that plays out. I think just from a fan aspect though, like the idea that you could be sitting here and, you know, early to mid November and 30 different fan bases have a path to make the playoffs. Like that's just good for the health of the sport. Cool. Uh, you know, I, that, to me, that just comes down to it in the end, right? Cause the way that media has covered the, the four team era has really done the sport a disservice because by, early to mid October, that's, it's all anybody in the media is talking about. And if you're not, you know, if you have more than one loss, it's like, you're not even worth talking about. And it's just really not healthy for the sport. Well, I also think that the health of the top programs is the best it's ever been. But like in terms of like, you look across the country right now um, at, and, and then you look back over the course of the 14 playoff era, like Texas was down basically the entire time. Um, and, and you had uh, Florida State going through kind of the, the tough, tougher times. Uh, Michigan was largely not nationally competitive for large swaths of that. Um, there wasn't really teams in the Pac-12 that were playoff caliber teams at that point. Right. Like w- right Texas, now, USC, I, all these teams. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think we're oh. seeing uh, a lot of concentration of coaching talent at the top right now of the sport but there's so many good coaches and so many good jobs that you have a lot of schools performing at or close to their ceiling. 
which creates a more competitive environment at the top of the sport. So um, I don't think that was the case. I think that during the, the large portions of the 14 playoff era, there was a lot of instability of a lot of major jobs. Um, and so there will always be some jobs turning over. I mean, as we see with uh, Texas A&M turning over this year uh, with Florida, we'll see what Florida does. But I think that Billy Napier has done enough to keep his job for another year. I actually think that Florida's on the right track. Uh, yeah. There's I, – I think that, like, the competition at the top of these conferences is only going to heat up, especially – be heating up, especially as we go to this big two model where the Big Ten and the SEC – um, are going to have really hoarded all the best teams with the most talent in their in those two conferences. Yeah, speaking of A and M, uh, some wild wild news here as we've been talking QB. So the, it was That's earlier tough. reported today, earlier reported today that Mark Stoops is going to leave Kentucky to take the A and M job. Over in the last five to ten minutes or so, now everybody has reported that that is not happening, and he will be staying at Kentucky. So pretty wild reversal there. We'll see what is, happens. Is this one of those things where? The Georgia Gazette guy reports that Dan Lanning is going to be the Oregon head coach. Everyone says, no, not happening, and then he gets confirmed as the head coach the next day. It could be. It could be, but this is a lot of the big name. I mean, it's Feldman, it's Thamel, it's all the guys who are normally never wrong on this stuff are all saying he's not. All those guys did the same thing then. Getting the job. I don't think so, but we'll see. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I I also wonder if it's something where uh, the the backlash to to the the uh, the supposed hire of Stoops maybe caused somebody to change their mind. I don't know. We'll see. Follow that one for sure. It's a it's a fluid situation down there in uh, where the hell do they play? College Station. There you go. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's get to this game. Civil War, the last one currently scheduled. I think there's a lot of rumors that Oregon and Oregon, particularly Oregon, is trying to do some things to, to move some games around. I know uh, James Crepia reported this first. Some others have as well. But uh, the two, two pathways to playing the Civil War next year, uh, one being to either cancel or reschedule the next two years of home and home with Boise State, which opened up. Um, those two slots in September to play the Beavers. The other one that was floated, which is more intriguing. I don't know if I like it, but it's interesting is that Texas tech would actually give up their trip to Autzen next year and instead take a trip to Washington state to help them fill out their schedule. And then that opening would allow the, the Beavers to slot into, um, into a game next year against Oregon. So we'll see where, where this all ends, but for now, um, obviously Oregon wins this one, thirty-one to seven, dominating fashion. Um, you know, really a, a game like most of the games we've talked about this year. You know, where it just felt like the game was never really in doubt. You know, Oregon got up fourteen zip pretty early in this one. It was a very long drive at the beginning of the game. Crazy Oregon really only had three full possessions in the first half of this game. And then somehow manufactured a touchdown in 40 seconds and uh, for a fourth possession at the end of the first half to take a 21 to seven halftime lead. And then it was just kind of like all she wrote after that. Yeah, that game should have been 28 seven and a half, too. Um, it, yeah. It, it's it, this is one of those games where, and it's funny because I was getting messages from friends who are fans of other teams around the country. Uh, and they're like, 
I understand the score is 21 to, to 7 at halftime, but it feels like it's 100 to 7. Like, it feels like this is a completely insurmountable lead for Oregon State. Right. Um, and frankly, like, with the way that Bo was playing, I would agree. It was a completely insurmountable lead. Um, I, I want to spend a lot of time talking about that because I think that uh, I've had some arguments with some Duck fans today on Twitter about how good Bo is and where he falls and the the Oregon quarterback <laughs> yeah. pedigree. Uh, and I made some statements today that I think some people thought were hot takes, but uh, we're can we can we talk about the game and then come then come to that after? Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. But what, what, what right, we're and I definitely want to hear that though. I think because I've I've seen some of that and I I definitely want to hear your take and maybe have a, a few thoughts of my own. Uh, but I totally agree with you. I mean, before before Oregon scored that uh, that that late touchdown in the first half, you know, after Oregon State had gone fifteen plays, eighty yards, uh, really aided by another. Highly questionable call against the Ducks that gave Oregon State a, a first down after a third and long. Um, and it was 14-7, and there's like, you know, 50 seconds left. And I'm like, Oregon has utterly dominated this half of football, and we're going to go in up by a touchdown, and they're going to get the ball after a half. It, it, it kind of felt like a – it. I was sad. I was – you know, the, the, the crowd was like, holy shit, how are we only up seven? It felt like we had just – and we had just totally dominated that first half. But, you know, I, there's – you know, we're kind of seeing this pattern at times. We get down – we're just – our offense is just churning, and then we get into the red zone, and it's just like, what are we doing? Like, I <laughs> – I don't know. I, I really was unhappy with some of our red zone play that led to the missed field goal on the third possession of the game. And then I think we had another one later, it, the first possession of the second half. I kind of thought we did the same thing again. We get down inside the 15 and then it's like, what are we doing? Like, can we just run our offense, please? <laughs> and we had to kick a field goal on that one too. Yeah. I was having a conversation with, with my dad during the game and it, it kind of struck me that when we got down in the red zone, we were trying to get both stats and, and like make sure that he was involved in the touchdowns for his Heisman campaign because <clears throat> the get signed all of the game was in doubt, um, and I think it hurt our efficiency, right? And so um, this was a game where you could afford to do that. The game next Friday is not a game where you can afford to do that. So I hope we I hope we don't see that persist. But uh, it just it just seems like they were trying to like they were very actively trying to get Bo. Um, involved in touchdowns that would show up on the stat sheet situationally. Uh, and then obviously we, we saw the missed kick. Um, and that's going to be – I think that's something that actually – we could talk about this more later in the week when we talk about the Pac-12 title game. But I think that that's something now, since it's become a consistent problem, same thing now we've had six straight games with, with uh, kicks out of bounds, kickoffs out of bounds. Uh, where it probably really adjusts your strategy going into games and how you're going to handle certain types of situations in games. Uh, I'm not suggesting that Dan should chase points um, and go for everything, but I, I, if you're on a hash and it's fourth and two or fourth and three, and it's like somewhere in the 35 to 50 yard range, I, I almost think it's a higher percentage play to just roll the offense out. What do you, what are your thoughts on that? Right now, with the way maybe Camden is in his head. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think outside of, you know, if you're talking fourth and six, fourth and seven, you know, and you're inside a 42 yard range field goal. Yeah. That's, that's probably a different story depending on the game situation, but I'm with you. If it's fourth and three or less, 
I just think you go, you know, you, you, you bring your best two point play out there do whatever, do so, you know, like just go out there and, and get the first down. And if you don't, you live with it. But I, I just, that, that, that miss field goal is so demoralizing. I, it's so, you know, and it's just a, right now, I mean, how many games in a row has Cam missed a field goal or, you know, it's a lot. He's, his, his, since that Washington game, he's not been right. Um, I'm hoping the kicks out of bounds problem is solved at least for this next game by the fact that we're playing indoors. Um, you know, cause he has the leg to just boot it through the end zone. I think when, when he struggled, it's been either, you know, wind or cold or rain or other conditions that have mostly when he struggled, not all the time. So hopefully we're playing indoors. He can just boot it out of the end zone and, be done I mean, with that on the kickoffs at least. Yeah, I, again, I hope so. I'm not, I'm not rooting against the kid. I'm not trying to be hypercritical, but uh, it, it's getting to a place, and we're getting to a point in the season where it's like not being automatic on everything inside of 40 um, could really be a detriment as we play really, really good football teams because we've been, we've been so much better than everybody we've been playing for the last month and a half that it hasn't mattered. But I tell you what, like we are going to play some teams where it matters here soon. And so it's either going to be a situation where he gets it right and we start making those kicks with consistency again like he was all last year and at the beginning of this year, or we just have to make a strategic decision that basically when when we're across the 50 and not inside the 30, that it's always four down. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, you know me, I'm always for that anyway. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it, and like situation, like I think that's against certain types of teams you should take points. Like against Michigan, like for example, like watching that Ohio State-Michigan today, like right. Ohio State not having that kick turned out to be a problem for them. Um, and, and, and being able to capitalize on limited possessions, like getting points even if – like something, sometimes things happen on drives and you're not going to be in a position to go for it on fourth and nine, the ability to drive a 45 or 50 yard field goal in and get points out of that possession, as opposed to having to either punt or do a low percentage, go for it situation. Like that, that, that could matter in one of these big games that are upcoming. So um, I don't want to get too yeah. far ahead of ourselves talking about matchups against potential playoff opponents, <laughs> uh, but even against Washington, as we saw earlier this year, missing kicks can be a problem. Uh, against them, so uh, yeah. it, it'll be interesting. Yeah. It'll be interesting to monitor. But going back to the game itself, uh, I, I'd like to start on the offensive side of the ball. Like Bo yeah. is playing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So we had the we had the four possessions of the first half. We get three touchdowns and the missed field goal. Then we get a field goal to start the second half. Then a touchdown, and then it's, then it's game over. The fourth quarter was all garbage time. We got the interception basically at the start of the start of the fourth quarter, and then you know we just finished out the game with a couple punts. So. Uh, overall, the offense put up 480 yards, which was, uh, you know, pretty good total points. Didn't really keep up with that, but, you know, it was kind of some of that was the low possession count in the game and the flow of the game. We, you know, Oregon averaged 9.2 yards a pass. The running game, only four yards a rush. And this has been a theme we've seen over the last few games now. We have, the Oregon has not run the ball as well over the last three weeks as they had prior to that point. I don't know if this is just the way teams are choosing to defend us. If there's something going on in our in our blocking or in our running, uh, I'm curious what you think there. Yeah, well, I think mean, the first thing is that 
we're more efficient running the ball with James right now. And I think it's because James is a lot more healthy than Bucky. I think Bucky's playing hurt. Um, and he doesn't have the same energy and juice that he had earlier in the season. Um, and so I think that obviously we, we have to play a game on Friday here. Uh, but once we get through that game, I think that that long bowl break will be a good opportunity for Bucky to get fully healthy um, because I think that's impacting the run game some. Um, I think also some of it's the way that teams have tried to beat us. I mean, we saw it this week again. Um, teams are flying downhill and really slanted bodies into the box, and they're begging Bo to beat them. They're, put, they're trying to pressure Bo. They're, they're blitzing. Um, and they're, they're saying, hey, like we're going to make it hard. Like You're going to have to execute against pressure. Um, and he's doing that. And so, yeah, is it is it super great that we haven't been able to run the ball as effectively as we're used to running the ball? No. Is there probably some stuff with the offensive line as well? Uh, maybe I have to watch the tape. I haven't had a chance to really dig into the, to the game from last night yet. Um, but watching it live and anecdotally, like I, it was pretty clear to me uh, I, that Oregon State was – not going to allow us to win with an efficiency run game. Yeah, I think we've seen that a, a lot more this, this second half of the season where we saw that with Arizona State last week, right? I think we saw it with, with USC to a degree too. They just said, you know what, we're going to, I don't want to say dare Bo to beat us, but I mean, it's been kind of that, I mean, it makes sense, right? If, it, if, if, if you don't do something and then you let Oregon run for six and a half yards of carry, you're not going to win. At least in the passing game, you can hope for incompletions or deflected balls or drops or whatever. Yeah, or mistakes by the quarterback, like a poor decision. <laughs> uh, the, the problem that all these teams are running into, and that is that Bo has played the most. He's played the most games in college football history, and so whatever uh, you throw at him, yeah. I can I can almost promise you it's not the first time he's seen it, um, and he knows the answer to the test. So like you 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 blitz, you bring field pressure you get an overload and you get a free runner. He knows he knows what his answer is to that. He's going to stand in and he's going to deliver an accurate ball. Or he can escape and deliver an accurate ball. Um, or he could check to a or he could check to a screen into the field pressure. Or it, he he knows he has complete command of the offense right now. Um, and there's uh, it was one of the few times I've ever seen I, I don't think I've ever seen an Oregon quarterback throw into pressure as well as he did on Saturday or on Friday. I, I thought that was the most dominant performance against Blitz by an Oregon quarterback that I've ever witnessed. It was unbelievably impressive. The, the one to Franklin where he threw the out, um, oh, yeah. caught oh, the ball, God. retreated, created time, and then delivered a ball with like unbelievable anticipation um, to the sideline. Like I thought he was throwing that ball away. I, I was like, oh, this is a dead play. He's just getting rid of it. And then, it, and then he just throws an absolute dime to Franklin on the sideline. Um, and that was, like, far from the only example. They brought interior pressure, and he's throwing the ball into the vacated space from the linebacker's brig coming up the A-gap. He's delivering um, – it's also the touch that he's delivering these balls with. Like, whether uh, there was one to Tez Johnson, uh, I think, in the third quarter, um, where he's – He's, he's layering balls over second-level defenders, under third-level defenders. It, it's just like it's really, really high-level quarterbacking that we're witnessing right now. And I, I think that Oregon fans, not all Oregon fans, I'm definitely not accusing uh, people that listen to this podcast, this, but I, I am seeing Oregon fans taking for granted just how like 
dialed in he is and has been now since the Utah game. Like I have never seen sustained like perfection at the quarterback position the way that Bo is right now. He's just his downfield passes are accurate. He's throwing the ball outside the numbers with great velocity um, and accuracy. He's he's throwing with touch into the middle. He's he never misses or like this is something we talk about when we talk about the Darren Thomas stuff later. When we like you talk about the check down bow stuff that people talk about, he never misses those. The ball's always on on uh, on the right shoulder or the right hip, so that a back or a receiver can run with it after the catch. Guys are catching the ball in full stride with the ability to accelerate through the catch point and create yak. Like people are taking that for granted, they're thinking that that's normal. Yeah. It's not. It's such it's a. It's normal. such a. It's such a bad argument in a, in multiple ways. Like you look at the first touchdown of the game to Bucky, right? Like you want to say, "Oh, it's a checkdown. It's a swing pass to the running back." I'm like, "Yeah," and the guy the guy caught the ball and scored a touchdown, right? Like, what do you what you want him to throw to the end zone to a guy who's double covered, right? Because because it's not taking the checkdown. I mean, it was a perfectly designed play. He hit, and and I think what you said is right on because whether it's a running back out of the backfield, whether it's a receiver on a crossing route. They don't have to break stride. The ball is hitting them on the numbers or on the hands, like dead perfect almost every time. QB, like that is an incredible skill. Like people, and if you like talk you said, to anybody that has go back and watch position. Justin Herbert when he was Oregon. Watch Justin Herbert throw a swing pass to a running back. Like talk watch to anybody who's played the like, position. They're not good. Coach, and I love coach. Herbert, but. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but talk to anybody who's played the position, coached the position, coached offense at even the high school level. Like it, th- those are like those are not easy throws. Like bubbles, smokes, um, especially specifically because Bo does it a lot of times without getting his hips aligned, and he's consistently accurate throwing catchable balls to backs. And like backs, we all know that like the strike zone on the running back is pretty small a lot of times, right? Um, and he just he's he's super efficient. He never misses those throws, and and we just take that for granted. But what we don't realize is that like not only is he making the decision to take a profit, but he's creating the profit with the delivery in the placement of the ball. And so uh, I I just I don't yeah. want to see fans take that accuracy for granted, and I don't want to see fans re- take for granted the fact that he's executing against pressure at such a high level because it he's he's defeating the defense like that. Like that is literally defeating the defense. What I mean by that is like, there's nothing else you can do if you're a defensive coordinator against Oregon. Well, we can sack the box and try to stop the run and he's going to throw it. Well, we could try to like heat him up and bring pressure to put him off his game um, and, and maybe force a negative play an incompletion or a tip or throwaway. And he's just, he's just surgically taking you apart against pressure. So that's now off the table. So what are your options defensively? You're either going to let Oregon run the ball for six and a half yards of carry. You're going to let Oregon drop. You're going to let Bo Nix drop back and pick you apart in the zone game, run his check down screens and RPOs, um, and get guys in positions to catch the ball and get yards after catch, which Oregon did consistently against Oregon State on Saturday. Okay, well that's not working. So now we have to. We're going to we're going to run some man and play in blitz. Well, first of all, you can't cover Oregon, and second of all, uh, even even if you do against pressure, he's either going to escape and make a play with his legs, or he's just going to, he's going to go to the vacated space on the field. Uh, and, and one of Oregon's receivers are going to win a one-on-one and they're going to catch an accurate ball. It's like you're, you're, you're out of options now. Now we're back to ground zero again. What do we do to stop the Oregon offense? 
And so well, seeing now, him do yeah. this, this is special. This is not something like, – this is Joe Burrow 2019. This is Bryce Young 2020 uh, or Mac Jones 2020. This is Bryce Young. This is C.J. Stroud. Um, is he going to get drafted as high as those guys? No, but he's executing at that level of – uh, of efficiency running the offense. Yeah, he's now up to second in the country in yardage, um, past past Michael Penix, just behind Dylan Gabriel, uh, who threw for four hundred today. Uh, so both second there. He's thirty seven touchdowns against two interceptions. I mean, that's an ungodly touchdown interception rate thirty seven to two. He's also passed Penix in yards per attempt. Uh, so I think he's third in the country there now as well. Um, you know, seventy-eight point six percent. It this is a special, special season, and yeah, anybody who's anybody who's coming at at Bo is just they have an agenda. They're trying to promote somebody else, right? So it's crazy. This is a this is one of this is a great this is an all time great season by a quarterback at any school. Yeah, I'm not again, saying the all time. I'm saying it's in the list, right? Yeah, and I think that people are taking it for granted. Not not everyone, and again, not intentionally, but he's just. He's just. Sorry about that. I actually muted myself with my thumb. Uh, he's just <laughs> like. He is it is it super sexy and flashy? Is he just driving the ball downfield over and over again? Is he throwing a bunch of 50-50 jump balls? No, he's not. But he is operating an offense at peak efficiency, which to me is sexy. Like that's awesome. Like 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 yeah. Is it is it? Are we just throwing constant daggers downfield? No, but he's throwing twelve to fourteen dimes downfield a game, and then he's operating at basically a hundred percent on everything underneath 10 yards. And a lot of those plays are turning into explosives on their own just because the ball placement and timing is so elite that our receivers are getting exceptional opportunities for run after catch. Like, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think a lot of national, like people that look at stats and people that care about air yards and attempt. And I, I understand that. Like, I think it's important context to consider, but when you watch Oregon's film, you're all you're seeing is a quarterback that is just dealing and has complete mastery over an offense, is manipulating that offense, is calling all of his own protections, is changing the play of the line of scrimmage consistently, getting Oregon out of bad plays into good plays, um, dialing things up, uh, completely working like working like a surgeon against pressure, uh, throwing with anticipation into second and third windows against zone. Like it's just it's just such high level. It's professional level quarterback play. This is not something that is common. Like this, we we will not have this next year. I don't care who our quarterback is. I don't care who we get out of the portal. I don't care how much arm talent they have, how great of an athlete they are. We will not have this next year. So do not take it for granted. Enjoy it because it's unbelievably fun to watch, um, and it's creating the. I, I don't see how you could argue that Oregon isn't the best offense in college football right now. I, I don't either. I mean, I guess uh, LSU might have an argument. And he's also playing his best ball in the month of November when it matters, right? So four games, 79%, 390 yards a game, 16 touchdowns, one interception. And that was yeah. that bobbled ball by Tez in the rain. So, I mean, at 211 quarterback rating in those four games, it, it's it's really incredible. And, he's playing and, better yeah, let's than get to that conversation. We're talking about Bo. Let's get to that conversation now that you wanted to have about where he ranks in the all-time Oregon quarterback. 
I mean, we'll see yeah, what happens yeah. to end the season because I think that there's room for him to move up. But to me, he has to be two, no lower than two. Because I don't like the way I do my my rankings, and we've talked about this a lot. Is if I took any quarterback and put him on the team right now, who would be the best? And I'm not even sure that I believe it if I told you that Marcus would be better than the way Bo is playing right now. I, I, yeah, I mean it was a different. It's a different offense, right? I mean he's he's there. He's not running the same offense Bo is, and. Uh, you know, Marcus is obviously a special quarterback and, and was a special quarterback at Oregon. But I, what Bo's doing right now, man, it's there's not a lot of guys who could do it. I've I've always argued that Achilles Smith's senior season and Marcus Mariota's last season are the two best single seasons by Oregon quarterbacks ever. And I, if Bo keeps this up and and wins a Pac-12 title, and gets us to the playoff, I would say that this is this probably surpasses both as the best single season by an Oregon quarterback ever. Um, now, I understand that Marcus did it for three years. I understand Achille did it for multiple years. Um, but these two years by Bo, for me, would place him easily at two. Uh, and I listen, I understand that um, Oregon fans, we love all of our quarterbacks, and I'm not saying this to disparage any of them, but every Oregon team, other than possibly the 2014 team, is a better team with Bo Nix the way he's playing right now at quarterback. Every single one of them. Yeah, I, I think that would be hard to argue with. He's fifth on the Alta on the career passing yardage uh, marks for Oregon uh, behind Mariota in three years, Herbert in four years, Musgrave in four years, four years for Danny O'Neill, and then Bo Nix in two years is. You know, and he could pass O'Neill and Musgrave, really, um, depending on how many games Oregon has left. Um, and if he had a third year, he'd be number one uh, with at his at his production. He would pass Mariota and Herbert in that category in a third year. You go to single season. You know, Mariota's obviously twenty fourteen is the most yardage. Nix is the second. Achilles Smith ninety eight is third, right? And I agree with you. I think those are the best three years of any of of any three quarterbacks, any any three quarterback years at, at Oregon. Um you know, touchdowns, he's are he's tied for third with Darren Thomas, so he will pass that. And that again, two years versus three. And to me, my argument is so much beyond statistical. I know. Like, I know. It's, like, I gotta put that just, out there. It's all I know, and I, I agree with you. And I think this, the stats in these conversations obviously are going to be part of it. But, like, it is so much more than the stats. It's all of the little things that he's doing that I don't know that we ever saw any. And it's not their fault, right? They played in different systems at a different time. And I don't know that there was as much um, agency by the quarterback in those systems to make their own calls and checks and do all those things. Um but he's he's doing things that a lot of those guys either couldn't do or didn't do. Yeah, I, it, it, the, he, the way he's running this offense right now is pretty darn special. And uh, you know, we, I know we talked a lot about Troy last week. He had another huge game. He's now almost 200 yards out in front of the, of the single season yardage record for receivers, up to 1,349. Um, he also took over the career touchdown record in sole position there with 25. Obviously still has the single season record there. He's at 14 and counting. Um, and he's tied now the 
the single season reception record at 77. So that will, that will go down as well. Mo is four is five touchdowns short of Mariota's single season touchdown record, passing touchdown record. So um, he's got at least two more games. So that seems like that's in, in, in range for sure. Yeah. And these are all records that I would have never predicted predicted we'd see get beaten in my lifetime definitely which, which i think just again adds like we, we we're talking about bow in the same context of marcus in that 2014 season uh it's pretty nutty so uh enough of this i know we've been rambling on about it i i just uh, i i just hope that oregon fans keep perspective on this and it makes it enjoyable to watch the rest of the season that you have a quarterback who's like an artist out there dra- painting a picasso well, and it, you know, and it's a lot about what what Will Stein. You know, it's so funny, right? You go back to when we hired Will Stein, and what he, you know, you watched. I know you jumped on and watched some of his coaching clinics, and and we we got to hear his interviews and feed the studs and and all those things. Get the play, get the ball to your playmakers in space, and then you sit here twelve games into the season, and you're like, this is exactly what this offense has done, what Bo Nix has done leading this offense. Right? It's all about getting the ball out getting it to your playmakers and letting them make plays. And it's obviously, you know, there's, you got Bucky, you got Jordan, you got Troy, you got Tez. You also got, uh, you know, the other guys like Gary Bryant last week and that, that huge run against, um, against Arizona state, you know, runner for the catch against in Arizona state. You've got times where it's been, you know, a Holden has made a big play or you got times where it's obviously been one of the tight ends has made a big play. Right. And then it, it really is just like, Who's the who's the guy who's in the right spot to make that play and and Bo will find him more often than not. Yeah, it also helps that we've loaded him up with exceptional weapons, right? Like Troy's the best receiver of all time at Oregon. There's no debating that. Um, if you're debating that, you're wrong, and that's fine. You're you're entitled to be wrong. Um, Tez, I think, is probably one of, if not the best, true slot receivers that we've had. I know we had some like kind of like hybrid players. Um, obviously, Deontay Thomas was incredibly special, but like as a true slot receiver, a guy that could run the whole route tree, um, catch catch the ball in, inside, outside his frame, uh, I, I think that Tez is one of, if not the best slot receivers we've ever had. Um, and Terrence Ferguson is playing really good football. Uh, Patrick Herbert is playing really good football. And I think that both Gary Bryant and Trajan Holden are adding a lot of value as, as, as a third receiver, whatever their opportunity comes. Um, so there's just, there's a plethora of weapons. We've got two backs that catch the ball while of the backfield. It, and, and we have a stud offensive line with two tackles that if they both return, probably will constitute the best tackle pairing in college football next year. So uh, it's, it's, it's a team effort with um, it, it's a race car, but you've got Lewis Hamilton behind the wheel and Max Verstappen if you're a Bull fan. Yeah, and I don't know who, who's going to quarterback this team next year, but whoever it's going to be is going to come into a really good situation or, or be, you know, inherit a really good situation being behind this offensive line, like you mentioned. You know, we're going to get a lot of these weapons back. New ones are coming in behind them, whether it's through the portal or people that are on the team through recruiting. And you mentioned Tez. Um, he, he actually could end up at the end of the season as the, the number two um, 
all-time leader in receptions in a single season. He has 70, which is only seven less than Troy. And so if he gets yeah. seven more receptions, he'll be he'll be he'll be number two on that list. And he's 58 yards short of a thousand. This will be the, the Oregon's never had two thousand yard receivers in a single season. He also has nine touchdowns on the year. So I mean, as a number two receiver, that's a that's a pretty dang good stat line. And he's been He's been so clutch, you know, so time and again, you know, working over the middle, first down, you know, create, making first downs, like just a, a very, very often, especially, come, you know, the second half of the season. It seems like he's been, uh, you know, even even more of a, a frequent big weapon down the stretch here. Yeah, he's just so slippery after the catch. Like it, the first guy almost never gets him. Um, but I, I have so many more thoughts about this team. I, I really want to transition over the defense because – while this is a really special yes. unit on offense, and it's a group that I'm very excited about, um, there's some players that I also think are not getting talked about nearly enough on defense that are playing some of the best ball that we've ever witnessed at Oregon. Uh, this this game was very nearly a shutout, and quite frankly, probably should have been a shutout. Um, and the, the defense, again, a little bit undermanned on the back end too, right? Uh, they played – they played a really, really good game. I mean, they held Oregon to Oregon State to uh, under 300 yards in this game, 273 yards. They only got 53 yards rushing, which I think was a season low for Oregon State. They held Martinez to basically nothing. I think the longest run of the entire game for Oregon State was six yards. Um, DJ was basically 50% on the game. It was a, it was a dominant performance, QB. Yeah, it was. And um, as we're talking about guys that are going to go down as all-time greats, he probably will only have been here for a season, but I will already tell you that Jordan Birch is the most dominant edge run defender we've ever had. <clears throat> and I know it's not a long list of great edge run defenders. Um, KT was pretty damn good at it. Deion Jordan was a good edge run defender. I don't count Buckner or Armstead in this group because they're more like defensive tackles, 4-I-5 technique, defensive ends at an odd front. I'm talking about guys that actually play on the edge. Uh, Jordan Birch is a mutant. Like, I don't there, – there's there's always these conversations among fans of like, well, how committed is he? How, how hard does he work? Is he going to develop in the system? I don't care how hard you work. I don't care um, how great of a kid you are or how determined you are to be the best version of yourself. You could work as hard as you want, and you will never be Jordan Birch because Jordan Birch is is born, not made. He is not developed. That is born. Um, in the same way that, like, the most talented punchers in the history of boxing, uh, I know Teddy Atlas famously talks about Mike Tyson, and he says that punchers are born, not trained. Um, there's just not a lot of 6'6", 290-pound humans who run 21 miles per hour in the GPS um, who can unlock power, change directions, um, and and run down running back sideline to sideline while setting the edge. He is just a freak, um, and he's going to get drafted higher than DJ did a year ago. I don't think Oregon fans realize how good Jordan Birch has been this season because he's not the most flashy pass rusher in the world, but he made Fuaga, who is a senior right tackle, very easily the best right tackle in the league this year, um, possibly Cornelius is better, but he, when you talk about like big, powerful, in-line, knockback blockers, Fuaga is the guy in the conference and one of the guys nationally. And Jordan Birch freaking owned him for four quarters. Just owned him. It was uncompetitive. 
that was one of the most dominant performances by an edge player I've ever seen. And it's not going to show up in the stat sheet. It's not going to be a bunch of sexy highlights of a guy bending the edge, flattening and, and killing a quarterback like it was for, for KT his freshman year against Utah or USC. Uh, but it was a, it was just, uh, it was a grown man just abusing another grown man for four quarters in a completely uncompetitive matchup. Um, and, and like to do it against that quality of player is something that needs to be like appreciated because it was epic. You know who it kind of reminds me of QB and uh, that played a different position, but in the same kind of way that it's like, it doesn't show up on the stat sheet is divorce Buckner, right? His last yep. year. Um, you know, I'm not saying Birch is as good as that or will be as good as that. And obviously they, they play different positions, but the way that Buckner just owned, I mean, he was the defensive player of the year in the conference, obviously. And the way he just owned linemen and he, he just ate blocks and, you know, they couldn't move him off his spot. And, and that's how Jordan has been in the run against the run game, particularly. Right. And uh, I think you've seen that, that over and over again. And uh, he's, he's just been really good. This whole defense and you look to, especially like, how much the defense has improved, not only from last year to this year, but from week one, week two, hell, week six to now. Uh, the, yeah. the improvement, especially the front seven. I mean, I mean the back, the back five. I think is has been, you know, they've been battling injuries, right? So they're just kind of like, how do we hold it all together? But the front, the front six, front seven, wherever you want to call it, their improvement from middle of the season till now is, is leaps and bounds, and I think we're going to see that, you know, Friday night. Yeah, I agree. I, the reason I just wanted to point out Jordan Birch is because, like, yeah, is he going to be a first-round pick? No. Uh, I think he'll be he'll be a day-two guy. I wouldn't be surprised if he goes in the first half of day two. Um, but it's just it's just not something we've seen a lot of. Like, we haven't had guys, one, that look like that and move like that, but two, um, that are that dominant of edge run defenders. Like, we've had some solid guys, but, like, when you compare the way that it – the way that when he gets his hands on guys and the way that their shoulder pads rock back and the way that he's able to completely control blockers shed and get to the ball, whenever he wants to, there's just, there isn't anyone that comes to mind for me that's done it as effectively. Um, and so like when we were having these conversations about guys that are some of the best players that we've had at different positions on the same team, it, it, it really shines a light on how special this season is and why this season needs to be cherished and enjoyed and why, like, I really haven't been stressed out recently and why, like, when we're when we're, we're previewing these games, like, you're talking about Oregon State, and, like, I know a lot of people are like, wow, you see, I got some DMs from people, like, and you seem, like, really confident. Like, you sound kind of like a homer. Like, are you sure that, like, it's going to be a dominant performance? And then you go out there and it's like, yeah, because the we have players that erase advantages for other teams. Like Fuaga, like go back and watch him against Washington. Like ZTF is getting forklifted and escorted out the club, and then he gets on the <laughs> field with he gets on the field with Jordan Birch, and Jordan Birch is knocking him four yards in deep into the backfield, shedding a block and making a tackle by himself. Like it's just when you have player when you have dudes like that, it's a different game, and that's why this Oregon team in twenty twenty two is so or twenty twenty three is so different than the twenty twenty two team. And so different than the 2021 team. And frankly, in my opinion, different than the 2014 team or the 2012 team. Like to me, and I told you this preseason, I was like, I, Doug, I think, this, I think this team has a chance to be the best team we've ever had. And they still got to win some games. And ultimately, like you're judged based on your successes 
um, and, and, and the championships and the trophies that you win. But the quality of athlete on this team is the highest it's ever been. We have a quarterback who's playing as efficient a ball as we've ever seen. We have mutants like Jordan Birch on the edge. We've got two tackles that, while they won't probably go pro this year, will be pretty high draft picks the following year. We have all of this talent at premium positions. We have a receiver that will likely go in the first round of this year's NFL draft or, or the early second round of the draft. We have a running back who, like, it's a position that doesn't get a lot of value from the NFL, is probably a top five running back in school history. Um, it, it's just a completely loaded roster. It's a well-coached roster. It shows up well-prepared, um, and it's a, it's a dominant football team. And it's a team that I would put up against any team in the history of Oregon football uh, very favorably. Yeah. You know, looking at the defense, you know, I think we talked, you talked about this on the preview show that you'd see Oregon and base, you know, a bit more. And we did, um, you know, what they brought, they brought an extra lineman on in those scenarios or, and they brought off, they brought Steve Stevens off, moved uh, Taishim back to true safety in the scenarios where, where Oregon state was playing their, their 12 personnel packages. And, and that seemed to be obviously very effective along with, I mean, just the, I mean, Bossa and, and Jacobs at the linebacker, I both played, you know, really, really good games. And you don't even know, you know, you don't even notice it. Like that's the thing about this defense. It's like, it's not built on, one or two stars, it's built on 11 guys doing their job, which is what Dan talks about all the time, right? And it just, you see that like snap after snap and, and like and the hero on any one play is, it's a different player. It's kind of, I was kind of going through a mental list, you know, the other day of like, oh, who on this team's going to make all conference, right? And it's pretty easy to name the guys on offense uh, for the most part. But on defense, you're like, there's just not, a, I mean, they just, they play so much team play and and then obviously then in the front in the front they rotate so much it's like you don't see anyone who's got like eye-popping stats but it doesn't mean you trade the you know so i don't know how many all-conference players are going to be on the defense for oregon but i all i know is oregon has the best defense in the conference and there there's probably more guys that are deserving of being on those teams than than will be named yeah i mean the way i look at it is if birch and doralis aren't first team defensive linemen there's something wrong with the list because uh, Doralis, like, I just went off about Birch for 15 minutes, sorry. Um, I'm passionate about that one. But, like, Doralis is playing exceptionally good football right now. There's a lot of guys that are playing really, really good football right now. I got laughed at by Husky fans this season when I was talking about the Oregon interior defensive line depth. And, you know, like, like, like talking trash about guys like Keanu Hudson. Like, Keanu Hudson's not playing a lot of snaps for Oregon right now, but the snaps he's given us are higher quality than anyone on, on Washington's defensive front, and I'm including Thule in that. It's just the truth. How many? I, I mean, would Tui would, would even play in our rotation? I mean, he probably would, well, right? Also, but nobody also, else on their roster would. He's also banged up, so I don't want to be too yeah. like critical yeah. of him. But like, but no one else in their in their interior would even sniff the field. No, on our no, roster. absolutely not. I, I, don't. I mean, between Popo and Taki and Casey Rogers, shout out, uh, congratulations on your engagement, um, and Doralis, and I mean. Keon, like no, no, no one else on that roster would even come close to getting on the field in our no. interior. I mean, Ale, he's not playing. No, absolutely. Parker Brothers, not. I, not a, like whoever, whoever the hell those other guys are, they're not playing. To 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 the the foot. What is it? Fatuli to Not playing. Those guys are playing. The only guy that's playing is a healthy Latui Gasnoa plays, but he's the only one. But he's not a starter. 
No, no, he's not better than Dorless. He's in the rotation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. it, it's the, the depth there is insane. It's insane. And it's then, quality. you know, all these freshman edge players are starting to, you know, Tuiati, really strong game. He had five tackles in this game. Obviously, Mateo, who's been hurt, he came on and got a sack on his brother, which is cool to see. Um, and then, obviously, uh, Blake Purchase, Purchase as well. eliminated yeah. DJ Uyongoli of their last drop back on the night. I just completely destroyed him. Um, no, this is a this is a really talented group. It's a young group uh, on the edge outside of uh, the elder statesmen, Funa and, and Birch, uh, but the talent is just ridiculous. And uh, Elijah Winston continues to give. Or is it a, is it, no, it's Amari and Winston. I apologize. Amari and Winston continues to give quality reps um, on the edge. I, I thought Dante Manning played very very well um, at corner. Yeah, I, I thought. I mean, Kyrie Jackson. Like, I mean, outside watch, of that penalty he, he got for tackling, you know, apparently you're not allowed to tackle. That's yeah, a penalty bring, now. The suplex in a guy shouldn't be a penalty. It wasn't it's, even a suplex. He just spun him around. Well, he kind of suplexed him. Yes. It, was right, it was right in front. Of, I know where you sit. It was right in front of you, too. I um, saw it, and I watched it on the replay. Anyway, it's not a penalty. That's I, You see that happen every be. game. That should not be a penalty. I agree. We're, we're on the same page. Uh, but he played really good ball. I think the one thing I noticed and the one thing that was a concern to me, and they got some stuff uh, with some yak on slants and stuff because they've, they've got small receivers that are yeah. quick guys with good speed. Um, they're good in space, like in breaking routes where they catch the ball. They can, they can, they can hit the booster and, and, and get up the seam and create some space and some yak. Uh, but I mean, I tell you what, like we were contesting, contesting balls, uh, across the board, and I, I was very impressed with the way that the corners played. Um, I, the safety is going to be a concern of mine in coverage for going forward. Yeah. Um, I, I think next week we got to put we got to put a corner at nickel. We got to put either Nico in there or move Florence if he's back. I, somebody we've got to put Taishim back at safety and have a, have a corner play the slot. I just. I hope for I hope we do that. I'm not the coach, but twelve games, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, this is a game like and I don't want to spend too much time talking about because we have a whole preview episode coming up here later this week. But uh, yeah. this is a game where if you could have fin- finished it off signing Peyton Bowen, it would have gone a long ways. Uh because Washington is uniquely built to attack Oregon's biggest weakness on the entire team, which is, in my opinion, the safety room. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's honestly the only thing that worries me about this game. You know, again, we'll talk about it, but if you didn't have that, I would feel extremely confident. But, you know, what we saw at the game up there and we saw last year's game is two or three, two or three big throws against the safety. And, the, and, and that's, you know, two or three touchdowns. And that's the difference in a game. So yeah. we'll talk about that more later in the week. Any more you want to talk about this game? Obviously, 11-1 season, uh, winning the Civil War with the Pac-12 ending. There's only one team now that Oregon has not won the final game with in this conference. Uh, so out of the other 11 teams, they have won the last game against 10 of them. And the, the other one is Washington, and they play them in six days. So uh, Oregon has taken care of business around the league, and they'll have a chance to uh, – to finish it off next week in Las Vegas. That's a good feeling. Like you take care of the Huskies, you go into the off season, you go, you go forward in your future knowing that 
against all 12 teams or I guess 11 teams other than yourself in the old Pac-12. You won the last matchup against every single one of them. Yeah. You so got, you got like the, a, the, the, the you got the trophy in the case against all of them if they if they had trophy games right you'd have you'd have them all yep or exactly. all but one right now yeah yep. so and you, no, you got that, a chance and, you, you know, know prime opportunity to go get the get the last one on Friday yeah and get the last the last Pac-12 trophy I, mean, I don't know maybe maybe they'll give one out next year for the two team league who knows back two all right so let's move on this one uh, you and I both picked Oregon to cover. Justin didn't submit any picks this week, QB. So I'm kind of thinking he's 0 and 11. What do you think? You down with that? Sure. I think he's he he goes 0 and 11 this week, yeah. which still leaves him in the lead. <laughs> Is it really? Uh, actually, uh, if it, it would tie, you and him would be tied in that scenario. Perfect. We're tied. With one week to go. Yeah, you're tied with one week to go. All right. So um, Arizona, Arizona State, as expected, the uh, the Wildcats. Uh, put a beating on the Sun Devils on the road to move to nine and three on the year. Kind of roll this one up big time. You know, Kenny, Kenny and team just you know didn't have enough horses down the stretch. I think Rashada played in this one, didn't he? Uh, kind of. Yeah, I, 10 for I, twenty-two, I watched, eighty-two yards. Yeah, I watched early in this game, and they were still trying to do like the Wildcat with Conyers and and Scadabo. Yeah, Fajita, Fajita, Fafita threw for 527 yards in this game, five touchdowns and a pick. So yeah, McMillan end, ended the season strong, 266 yards and a touchdown. That uh, that top four for the um, all conference wide receiver spots is going to be a battle. It's going to be think a battle. Franklin I mean, Troy, Troy and Rome are the first team, but after that, the second team is going to be a battle. I would – uh, who would you go with? I'd go Let's T-Mac. Let's see here. Off the top look of at my yardage. head. So Troy and Rome are top two in yardage. T-Mac is third. Taj Washington is fourth. A.O. Meyer out of Stanford is next. I think Travis Hunter will sneak in. I think T Mac's got to be, got to be on there. I think it's it's Troy and Rome, and then you got T Mac and somebody. Whether um, it's Brendan uh, Rice has twelve touchdowns receiving, not not as much yardage, but he did he does have the second most touchdowns in the league. I could see a couple uh, of different I think you're, I could see yeah, Polk, you might I be right on Hunter. Hunter. I can see Polk. I can see Hunter. I can see Taj Washington. Um, I could actually. Well, his production's really falling. Polk's really off. falling off. His stats the last few weeks of. I, I don't know. He hardly did anything today. I don't. I don't know if he's going to make it. Yeah. I think it might be Hunter, Ao Manor, or or one of the USC guys is probably where I would put it. Yeah. Fair enough. It'll be interesting. It's a, that's a tough one. That fourth spot's going to be tough. Um. All right. So Arizona take care of business in the. Territorial Cup, two years in a row now for them. Let's move over, and then we both picked them to win, so we got that one. Washington State, Washington, another close win for Washington. They moved to 12-0 on the year. I think they've played eight straight games now that have all gone down to the wire. They won 24-21 at home in the Apple Cup. Keep Washington State out of a bowl game. Um, 
Penix, 204 yards, two touchdowns and a pick. Cam Ward threw for 317, three touchdowns, two interceptions. Um, I, you know, it, honestly, I watched this whole game, QB. It was not a well-played game. I, both teams made a lot of mistakes, a lot of kind of dumb dumb decisions by players and coaches alike. Uh, it was just it was just an ugly game, and, and Washington did what they do and found a way to win. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, – Penix was trying to give the game away in the last drive, but the, the Washington State DBs didn't want to take it. Um, it was an ugly game. Every Washington game is an ugly game. They just – again, the battery of wide receivers and quarterback is always enough to overcome at the end. Um, it it feels what, like Washington's entire offense has devolved into throw a back shoulder throw to Rome and, and he'll make the play. But that seems like their entire offense the last few weeks. That uh, running a reverse enough on to win. fourth and one on your own 30 is ballsy. Yeah, with a tie game. Because, yeah, if they don't convert that, Washington State probably wins that game, um, which is very similar to the play you know that, that Dan called last year in, against Washington to, to go for it on fourth and one at, at his own territory, turned into a Washington field goal. That was the final margin in that one as well. So, um, yeah, we're, we're familiar with that. And then obviously helped – by uh, on the very next play, a very questionable roughing the passer call that that put Washington in the field goal range and allowed them to kick the final margin. But they escape with another win, and they'll have a date with Oregon in Vegas for the Pac-12 title. We both picked Washington to cover. Uh, what were we thinking? It was sixteen and a half. They haven't beat anyone by sixteen and a half since September, so we we were probably should have gone with the Cougs. Yeah, but then again, well, we had the logic that the Cougars always cook it to Washington, which they did, but not by enough. Yeah, I mean they they cooked it, but they didn't they didn't like bend over and just quit, right? Like they they fought. I was actually like, I was surprised by the level of fight that this Cougar team put up today, considering I, I would assume that most of these most of the good players on this team will not be back next year. Uh, holy hell, Washington State's offensive line must have been called for 10 holdings, and they were all good calls. I mean, they they were holding the whole game because um, they couldn't do anything else. Their, their their offensive line was getting getting eaten all day by the pass rush. All right, let's go over to Utah down to their fifth quarterback in this game. Utah holds off Colorado 23-17 to move to 8-4 and four on the year, drops Colorado to 4-8, and 1-8 eight, and eight in the Pac-12 conference, not – the start that Dion had in mind in September when he was 4-0 or 3-0 or whatever he was. Um, I didn't watch any of this game. All I know is Utah, you know, walking wounded. They only threw 10 passes this game, QB. They ran the ball 53 times. 53 rushes to 10 passes. It worked. Yeah. Um, I didn't watch a snap of this game, so you're going to have to tell me what happened here. I didn't watch any either. They uh, apparently they just said, "Okay, we're playing Luke Botari at never heard of him at quarterback, so we're just going to run the ball." And they ran for 268 yards and won by six. So, right, well, uh, also, Shador didn't play. They announced him out of the game before it started, so they went with Ryan Staub, who didn't throw any interceptions. So that's that's a that's a something. pretty competitive game considering Shador didn't play. Yeah, Hunter had 107 yards receiving. 
that make you know eight catches probably helps his case a little bit for that second spot in the all conference standings there. But yeah, Utah, you know, Utah did what what they do and they won. So credit Utah moving to eight and four. Cam Rising announced this week he's coming back for another season. So that's a boost to their uh, chances next year in the Big 12. All right, next game up, Notre Dame at Stanford. Um, I think a lot of Notre Dame fans weren't ha- very happy because this game was on the Pac-12 network in, uh, what, 13 seasons of Pac-12 play. I don't think the Notre Dame-Stanford or Notre Dame-USC game has ever been on the Pac-12 network before this one. So <laughs> I think their fans weren't very happy that they had to try to figure out how they could watch this game. Um, but but if they did figure it out, they probably were happy because they won 56-23. Um you know, Stanford falls to three and nine on the year. Pretty, uh, pretty much what we expected out of Stanford in year one of the Troy Taylor regime. They were actually competitive early in this game. Um, they had the lead. Yeah, for they were a while, up early. But yeah, it was it was nothing that was like ever going to stick. No, and I think it's another game where Notre Dame just pounded on the ground. Yeah, they they only threw fifteen passes and they ran forty eight times. So that was the theme today. Uh, they ran for 381 yards and five touchdowns on the ground. So if you like old school running football, this would have been a game to watch, I guess. 56-23, they covered the 26-point spread, so you and I both got that one correct. Uh, game still in progress down in UCLA. I don't think it's going to matter. 345 left. Cal is leading the the Bruins 30-7. to They will get bull eligible. They will move to 6-6 six and six on the air, and they will beat their uh, Vegas over under at the beginning of the year, which you and I both called the lock of the season, which we were wrong, QB. We were. Good they, thing we uh, didn't bet the podcast money on it like we said we were going to. Yeah, I'm glad that we didn't. We my uh, sheer laziness, my sheer laziness in going out and placing that bet <laughs> is the only reason we didn't lose our money. <clears throat> yeah, I think there were some other bets. I think that would have been safer. Colorado under was, I think, a pretty safe bet. Yeah, would have looked uh, pretty scary there in September, but it would have paid off in the end. Dante Moore uh, played a lot in this game. I think um, Garbers got knocked out early. Moore is at 199 yards, one touchdown, two more interceptions. It's been a rough year for Dante. He's thrown a lot of picks this year down at UCLA, and we'll see what happens with him uh, after the season, if he's in the portal, if he stays at UCLA, or what the plan is there. But it looks like Cal might be about to punch in another touchdown here to win by 30. It's going to drop UCLA to 7-5. and five. We'll see what happens with Chip, uh, but they're moving into the Big Ten with really no momentum and no juice at all in that program. Yeah, I don't think that Chip is going to be their head coach next year. I'm going to go out so. on a limb. I think I it's think more likely that Jed Fish is their head coach than Chip. Well, unless Jed Fish ends up at Texas A&M, which is some of the rumor that's going around right now, too. Yeah, the, I was just looking at the, the Feldman and Thamel reporting. It sounds like it's going to be Elko and, and Elijah Robinson, the current interim. Oh, I like wonder. Kind of a, I wonder. Now, I know the AM fans were not a fan of Elko before, so I wonder if they like that, if they hate that less than they hated the uh, Stoops rumor. Yeah. So, again, I'm, I've just been doing some reading here while we, while we follow this. Um, it, that sounds like the main issue with the Stoops thing was that the the fan and booster backlash was pretty loud and well pronounced, um, and so they just decided to 
ice it before it, it went through final approval. Sounds like the contract <laughs> was, was signed. Everything was ready to go. Uh, and then it just got nixed at the last second. Um, wow. That's kind of embarrassing. I feel, I just, I feel bad for like stoops. If, if that's the case, right? Like you're all excited to take this new job, like the job that you've kind of been waiting for, or like your dream job. Um, and then it just gets ripped away from you at the very end because of a couple of boosters throwing a temper tantrum. And the thing is, is that show you how, go ahead. But whoever they hire probably is a worse coach than Mark Stoops. I mean, you take you to like Stoops or Elko. I mean, I think those guys are comparable, Um, but I would probably lean Stoops. I mean, like people don't realize how hard of a job Kentucky is. Kentucky was, was a horrible, horrible football job. Great basketball job. Terrible football job. Um, and he's made that job look kind of easy. And I think that I think that Kentucky fans um, and then and, and random spectators are taking that for granted. Yeah, I I agree. I when when he got hired, I thought you know he is overachieved at Kentucky pretty much every year. So seemed like a good hire to me. I don't follow Kentucky all that close, but you know he's in the SEC already knows SEC, you know, knows the conference and he's overachieving at a school that's really under-resourced and under, um, you know, desirable, if you will, whatever you want to call it, right? It's a basketball school and he's done pretty well there. So I, I thought it was a good hire, but, you he know, just goes to show you how lucky too. Oregon. What's that? He recruits the best that anyone's ever recruited there too. And like, I think that like, if you're looking at guys that are like kind of OKG program guys uh, that like, that do it with coaching development more than anything else. The reason that he's kind of different than that is because I think he would actually scale and recruit well at a bigger brand. Like if I'm UCLA, I would hire Mark Stoops all day, every day. Especially because he's already proven to be able to win at a basketball school. That seems like, I mean, there's, I'd hire him. I would have gone after Jonathan Smith. I'd go after Jed Fish. I mean, there's so many guys that, and they'll probably do something stupid like hire David Randa. I don't. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> probably not. Probably the balloon's probably off that rose. Yeah. So speaking of UCLA, our our friend Belize said, um, with UCLA pounding Cal, does UCLA now take over the title of being a disgrace to the offense to offense in college football from Cal? That's a good no. Because Iowa, Iowa, Iowa owns it. Iowa is the worst right. offense ever. Yeah, it, it, and it's the an embarrassment. That team, team is ten and two and playing in a conference title game. Like that's just that's that's all the reason you need to know why getting rid of divisions is the best thing ever. Yeah, it uh, certainly is going to upgrade the quality of football being played. Yeah, you got a lot of good football teams that are going to be sitting home next weekend while teams like Iowa and Louisville get a play. Yeah, Louisville's a whole other story. We'll see how they how they show up against Florida State next week. I could see them actually showing up and playing well despite the performance today. Could be, could be. All right, let's move on to our national games. Uh, Texas finally decided to not play with their food for once, and they smoked Texas Tech. I think what fifty-seven to seven or something. They're making. They're going to try to make their case for 
getting a bump ahead of Oregon and and trying to make their case for being in the college football playoff. So they uh, they rolled up fifty seven on Tech. Ewers only one hundred ninety six yards in this one, but uh, was a dominating performance for Texas. And you picked Tech, I picked Texas, so I'll take the win on that one. Yeah, I regret that. That was the wrong pick, obviously. 300 yards rushing for Texas. So, all right, moving they, they, along. They scored oh. touchdowns on special teams and defense, too, in this game. This was just complete and utter dominance. Yeah, it was. Uh, moving along, Texas AM at LSU. Uh, this is a game that actually AM looked pretty good early in this one. They had a, a, a nice lead at halftime or in the second quarter and took a lead into halftime and then. It was a pretty competitive game until the fourth quarter, and LSU and Jaden Daniels kind of blew it wide open. It looked for a while there like Jaden Daniels' Heisman campaign was about to go down in smoke. He had under 50 yards passing in the first half. I think he had like one touchdown through three quarters, but then he threw three touchdowns in the fourth quarter, uh, ended up with um, 350 yards uh, you know, running and passing combined and the four touchdowns. So. It definitely feels to me, with Penix having really fallen off this entire month, it definitely feels like a two-horse race right now between Bo Nix and Jaden Daniels for the Heisman. And I guess we'll see what happens next week with Bo Bo playing in Vegas and and Daniels sitting home. Yeah. I mean, who knows how many of these ballots will be submitted before before that game even kicks off. But um, I hope that people hold off and, and, like, actually respect the position that they have as Heisman voters. It's it's been pretty evident to see over the last two weeks the the like the media, particularly ESPN and the SEC, you know, kind of just the way they have like churned out the the Daniels campaign over the last and almost to the point where they're not even discussing it as a competition. It's just like Daniels has won the Heisman. We've anointed him. He's the only candidate, right? It, it's been pretty. Uh, I mean, it wasn't any surprise. This is exactly what I expected to see. You know, it felt like they were trying to do that three or four weeks ago with either Marvin Harrison or or JJ McCarthy. They were trying to they were trying to push an East Coast candidate, and the, both of those guys just weren't delivering statistically. And and then all of a sudden, Daniels kind of started. Not that he hadn't; he's been great all year, right? But he started putting in these kind of eye-popping numbers and and everyone just kind of glommed onto him and now he's the anointed one for the Heisman. And look, his numbers are incredible. Incredible. But he's playing on a team that got eliminated from the playoffs in September. Yeah. Um, I, I still have questions about how good Daniels actually is, to be honest with you. I think he's, I think he's throwing the ball to the best receiver tandem in the country. Um, sorry, Husky fans. I know that that's hard to hear, but it's the truth. Um, like the way that neighbors and Thomas are playing right now, I, I you'd be very hard pressed to find me two guys that are playing better football. Yeah, it's yeah, they're they're incredible. It's an incredible group, and they're an incredible offense, and they just don't have the defense to match it. They beat A and M forty two to thirty. That's another one we split on. Um, you had Texas A and M, which looked really good. Uh, the line was 11 and a half. So by, by the narrowest of margins, I picked LSU and, and squeaked out the, the win there late with their, their kind of last touchdown there on the board that helped out. Uh, Alabama Auburn, boy, did you watch the end of this one, QB? Yes. I thought that game was over. And then Alabama said, no, 
That game was crazy. What a play. Can I rant? Go for it. Go off. Okay. Uh, This has been a long-held belief of mine for years. And three times this year, I've now seen this in major games. The first one was Notre Dame, Ohio State. The second one was Notre Dame. The very next week, Notre Dame, Duke. And then this game was the third one. What do all three of these games have in common, QB? I don't know. You tell me. On the decisive play of the game, the defensive team decided to rush three players and give the quarterback 8,000 years to make a play. And all three times, the winning play was made. Why do teams do this? Why do they rush three? And In fact, in this one, they only rushed two because the other guy they used as a spy in case Daniels was going to run or something. Uh, Milrow. Not Daniels, sorry, Milrow. It was unbelievable. I, I don't understand that, especially that Duke-Notre Dame game was was the, the most egregious one because all day long, Duke had been bringing tons of pressure effectively on Notre Dame, had been causing all kinds of problems. And on the fourth and 18 decisive play of the game, they, they dropped eight, rushed three, gave Hartwell 8,000 years, and he threw a fourth and 18 completion to win the game. <laughs> Just like every time, man. Every time, I don't get it. What was the what was the band one? Fourth and thirty. Yeah, fourth and goal from the thirty-one, and they rushed two, spied one, dropped eight, and they still found a guy in one-on-one coverage. <laughs> you dropped eight into the end zone, and you got a guy in one-on-one. And oh, by the way, there was another guy crossing across the goal line that was also wide open. Well. Um... Unfortunate cameo for former Oregon Duck DJ James in that in that situation, yeah. but it was a hell of a throw and catch too. I think that deserves to be called out. But uh, I tell you I what, just, I'm really I don't I'm know how you can give a guy ten game. seconds like that. Yeah, it's not smart. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It, it it's a bugaboo of mine. Alabama was a fourteen and a half point favorite. They win, but by six or seven or whatever it was, the final margin uh, or three or four or whatever something. So obviously Auburn covered. Neither of us picked Auburn. I had them, and you talked me out of them at at the end. And I wish I would have not listened to you. Um, you are a Alabama. Great man. You do what you please. I know. I just need to not listen to you. I need to lock. I need to lock in my votes or something. I think that's two or three times this year you've done that, and I think every time it screwed me. So, yeah, you should just fade. Me. I'd be tied with you if I didn't listen to you. <laughs> yeah, I'm bad at this. So just all right. Fade me. Uh, down in the swamp, Florida State, Florida. That's another one. Uh, Florida really looked good early in this game, but they're just they couldn't get anything out of their backup quarterback, and Florida State's backup quarterback kind of started playing better and better throughout the game. And you saw that Florida state just has better weapons overall. Trey Benson had a big game and they, uh, they ended up winning this one and covering the spread. Uh, so they're still alive in their playoff hopes. Uh, any thoughts on this one? Um, I didn't get to watch large portions of this game. Uh, I saw the competitiveness. I thought Florida has some young players that are flashing uh, I think it's just a, a matter of getting more of those guys in, letting the guys that are flashing mature for an offseason. I think Florida's going to be a pretty good team, and I, I, I think it would be too early uh, to pull the plug on to pull the plug on Billy Napier. I think that he's really just starting to get things rolling there. He's only been there two years, right? This is his second season, yeah. I don't know how I, – I can't envision a scenario where anybody should get fired after two years, unless your program's just – 
you know, completely in disarray or you've got some sort of scandal or so, obviously stuff like that. But yeah, unless you're going full Willie Taggart, I think you probably should get through year three. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, whatever. I mean, I mean, he's got a what top 10 recruiting class right now. He's five and seven. Okay. Just missed a bowl game, but this, this team was in bad shape before he got there. And like you said, they're, the biggest problem I have with them, and this is why you he might be on the hot seat or should be on the hot seat maybe going into next year, is they play so dumb. They, I, I mean, you watch them from the first game of the year at Utah, how many dumb mistakes they made, how undisciplined they were, how like unsound they were assignment-wise, and you get to the 12th game of the year and you just see the same things over and over and over again. And that's the thing, I, if I was a Florida fan, that I would worry about. I think that part of that, though, is like as the season's gone on, they're transitioning to even more of a youth movement. So you're having young guys making the first, the mistake for the first time, um, and you had a bunch of old players making the same mistake earlier in the season. I, again, that's that's anecdotal, right? Like I can't prove that. But I, I'm noticing more and more of that true freshman class they brought in becoming major contributors uh, for the Gators as the season goes on. All right, we got to talk about the game. Um, Ohio State loses third year in a row to Michigan, who moves to twelve and zero on the year, thirty to twenty four. The Wolverines pull this one out. It was a um, you know pretty hard fought football game, pretty close the whole way. Uh, JJ McCarthy made a couple plays in this one. Uh, Cal McCord, two hundred seventy one yards, but two interceptions to go with his two touchdowns, and just felt like he would he didn't have it in the biggest moments. QB. Yeah, this was a quarterback gap. Like the team with the better quarterback won. Um, the the touchdown difference in this game was an interception throw by thrown by Cal McCord, I believe, early in the second quarter uh, that gave an extraordinarily short field for the first Michigan touchdown. Yeah, um, that was a ter- and, that was I don't know, that was just terrible throw, terrible decision. Yeah, yeah, and it wasn't his only one of those throughout for the day. Um, and so, what well, I go to the last see, one. Go to the last touchdown. You know yeah. they're 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 in Michigan territory. They've got the ball. They've got a chance to to score a touchdown and win the game. It was like what first down, and when he throws this terrible ball over the middle for an interception to end the game, like it's first down, dude. Like it wasn't fourth down. Like come on. Yeah, that one he at least like I think got hit as that ball was delivered. Um, but regardless, Ohio State is the. It's weird saying this, so I think Ohio State's the better team, more talented team, but their quarterback play is lesser. And because of that, Michigan won. And Michigan really established themselves and kind of controlled the line of scrimmage as that game went on. Uh, they're a yeah. tough team. They had Their poor uh, right guard had just a hideous injury. Um, it was reported that he broke his tibia amphibia, um, and it sounds like it was a compound fracture. Uh, but just – Brutal, um, and he, frankly, was probably the leader in the clubhouse for the Outland Trophy, uh, Keegan. Um, so That's too bad. We will see how that turns out. They just slid Barnhart it from right tackle into right guard, brought the third tackle in, who's actually a pretty quality player, and it didn't seem to change anything because I think that as the game wore on, um, the one thing Ohio State has is really good front line talent at defensive tackle. The one thing they don't have that Oregon has is depth. And that showed because as those longer drives wore on, they just got leaned on by that Michigan front. 
Yeah, you you could see that. I mean, the game started as a real defensive battle, the four punts on the first four possessions. And then, like you said, that interception uh, that McCord threw was really the break in the game, right? It was deep in his own end, gave uh, you know Michigan an extremely short field. I think it was a first and goal when they got the ball and, and they scored that touchdown. And then it was kind of like, kind of felt like Ohio State was playing catch up the rest of the way. Yeah. It's uh, I, I think that like a lot of people are calling for Ryan Day's head. Like that sounds stupid to me. That's dumb. Like, especially when you forecast these teams going forward, this Michigan team has forty-seven seniors. Think yeah. about that. Like, th- this team is so veteran. Half the yeah. roster is seniors. More than um, yeah, like sixty percent. Yeah, and and those numbers are secondhand. So if those numbers are inaccurate, don't yell at me. Yell at the guy that told me those numbers. But regardless, it's a, it's an unbelievably veteran team. Um, it's a team that uh, Jim Harbaugh was quoted talking to Bruce Feldman in the preseason. They're expecting 20 players drafted off this team. It's a really talented and very veteran and mature football team. Uh, and, and Ohio State's just young at some certain, at key spots. But they, but Ohio State is very talented in its own right. I, I think that uh, this streak is, is destined to break here probably next year. Um, but Ohio State's going to have to get quarterback figured out and get that right because currently it's their biggest bottleneck. Yeah, I'm not sure they can roll with McCord again next year, but I, I don't know. It just feels like he had a whole season, and is he much better now than he was at the beginning of the year? He does some Doesn't good things, like but he's also just kind of erratic. Yeah. Yeah, a uh, big win for Michigan. Obviously, they they brought all these guys back with the and the whole gang came back with the idea of you know trying to go on a national title run. So you know this was kind of a, a win and you're in, losing you're probably not situation. You know, I think I don't think Ohio State's going to be able to back in this year like they did last year, just because of all these other. I mean, you got four undefeated Power Five teams still. You could end up with four undefeated Power Five teams after next week, and even if you don't, you got. You know, well, then what happens? You got a, uh, if you either got undefeated Washington or one lost conference champion Oregon. Ohio State's not going to beat out either one of those teams. You got a, you know, same thing with Florida State. You got a Texas sitting there. You, you know, if Bama beats Georgia, they're, they're going ahead, right? So, I mean, there's probably a scenario where Ohio State could still get in, but it's very unlikely, I, I would say, for all those things to happen. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, Doug, are we, uh, I think that's our last game. Are we ready to do our power rankings and wrap this thing up? Yeah. Yeah. So you went six and five on the week. I also went six and five. You are now 70 and 76. I am 67 and 79. And Justin is also 70 and 76 since he went 0 for 11 this week. So congrats. We have, uh, you got a chance to to beat him next week and and take it all. Yeah. 0 and 11. God, that's almost as bad as 0 and 12. Yeah. 0 and 12. (laughs) <laughs> who is absolutely let's do the power coach, rankings uh who is absolutely colorado on timeline like owen deserves a shout out because he's been frying on the timeline he i'll say there are times when i don't love it when owen's um skewering his own fan base but i do love owen when he's skewering other fan bases and he has been on a heater of late so definitely well, when he's cooking like he's he's streaky too but when he yeah. he's like jr smith like he'll show up one random night and drop 56 and shoot like 80% from three, and he's been on one of those heaters, but he's carried it over yeah, multiple been. weeks. Shout out, Owen. All right, uh, Colorado, one and eight in conference. They are definitely number 12. 
Yeah, I have them 12 as well. I have ASU 11. I also have a, um Yeah, it's between them and Stanford. Yeah, I'll go with you. I'll go with ASU at 11. I just think that like ASU... Stanford's even, been a little more competitive down the stretch, so... Yeah, and then I've got Stanford also... Well, did they play? I don't even remember anymore. It doesn't matter. Yeah, they, they lost to Notre Dame. They're at, they're at 2 and 7. You put in them in, three I've, nine got, I've got uh, Stanford at 10, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, same. Same. Um, I've got Wazoo at 9, Cal same. at 8. Um, this was also I done this... before I realized yeah. that they were going to beat UCLA tonight. I still think Cal does. Cal deserves to be Yeah, there. Cal's still at eight. I mean, they actually have the same conference record, and they beat UCLA, but UCLA has one more overall win. I don't think Cal's that good. Uh, I, I'm going to go with Cal at eight. UCLA. I've got USC at seven, UCLA at six, but that doesn't feel right to me. Can all it these teams right be eight? Me. Can all these teams be at eight? <laughs> no, they can't. I, I like that. I, I, having UCLA at, at six – Oh, that just shows you this conference isn't as good as people were saying earlier in the year, QB. No, it's not. It was obvious then, so it's all right. We'll let it ride. Yeah. Okay, I, I got, got Utah, Utah five, five, Oregon State four, Arizona three, Washington two, Oregon one. It's At yeah. this point, it's same. pretty much the same thing every week. Yeah. And it, and it's not going to change in. anymore. So. Nope. Um, there's only only one thing could change, and that was, depends on what happens on Friday. Um and we're going to talk about that game a lot when we preview it on Wednesday night. But, uh, yeah, Oregon, Washington, the stakes have never been bigger in this game. <laughs> 12 and 1 versus 11, or sorry, 12 and 0 versus 11 and 1. That's never happened. Um, these two teams playing for a conference title has never happened. Uh, playoff berth, almost certainly on the line. That's never happened. Heisman, probably on the line. That's never happened. Uh, it's everything. This game is like a winner-take-all, QB. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that Penix wins the Heisman, though. If, if I, I, think he's out. I think he's out. I think it's, I think it's Daniels or Nicks. Yeah, I do too. You can play spoiler, right? I think, it's, I think if, Knicks, if, if Oregon wins and Nicks has a big game, then I think he, he might, he's going to probably win it. Um, and if Washington wins, then I think Daniels will win it. I think, I think Penix's November has taken him out of contention. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but it'll be in New York. I think those three will be in New York, probably along with Harrison, maybe. Yeah, I think Marvin Harrison right. Jr. will end up in New York, too. Yeah. There's really no right. that makes sense. So. No, no. You don't have a set number. It's just to be, if you hit a certain percentage of the votes, you end up there. So sometimes they have five finalists. Sometimes you only have three. It could be a three finalist year, but something tells me Harrison will get enough points to sneak in there. Yeah, I mean, the other thing on... that people do is they, they game the ballots, right? This is big in the South. The Southern voting block will do this. They'll, whoever is the actual, like if they want Daniels and they think Nick's is the real threat, a lot of them will either not put Nick's on their ballot at all or put, you know, so then they'll put like Harrison second and Penix third or something like that to try to game the system. Watch when the ballots come out. You'll see a lot of that stuff. Yeah, the good it's thing pretty, is though is that screwed I, up. I think that the Southern vote will give Nick's second place even if they prefer Daniels because he's from down there. That's a good point. 
That's a good point. It's an interesting dynamic in this one. I did the way the hate Heisman voting is done is kind of messed up in a lot of ways. The fact that there, that kind of thing can happen. The fact that people can turn in their votes before the conference title games, like either you, you should either just say like, okay, we're going to vote on this before the conference title games. Cause we want it to be about the regular season only, or you should say you're not getting a ballot until after the game, right? You, you know, you should have a definitive system. It's a little bit loosey goosey. You should right also cut it down from like a thousand people to like 50. Yeah. There's too many voters. There's way too many voters. They don't yeah, know I hear people QB. say that they're a Heisman voter sometimes. I'm like, how the hell are you a Heisman voter? Why? Yeah, John Canzano's a Heisman voter. Yeah. He brags about it every year. Yeah, he's an idiot. So, Like, why does he get a vote? What? What? How did he get a vote? I don't know. Yeah, I'll keep my thoughts on that to myself. <laughs> um, he's been crying a lot of tears over Jonathan Smith's departure from Oregon State. So that's the other big news. He's going to Michigan State, as has been rumored for a while now. And, and Oregon State is... I do feel bad for Oregon State as a program, for a lot of their good fans. They're in a rough place right now, losing the conference losing their coach, probably about to lose a lot of players to the portal, don't know where they're playing next year, schedule. Like it's it's rough and I don't wish that. Like I've I grew up in Oregon. I've been here my whole life watching them play, watching the Ducks play Oregon, you know, watching the Civil War. I don't want to see what's happening to them happen to them. So I I hope they come through it and out the other side and, and find a good place for their fandom and their program. Yeah, me too. I mean Again, the the ones I interact with on Twitter make me want to rub in the fact that their program is dying. Um, but I like interacted over the holidays with some like family and friends that went to Oregon State and are, and are passionate fans of that football program. And um, none of those people deserve this. Like, what did they do wrong? Nothing. Uh, there was a lot of mismanagement of that old league, um, and uh, shoot, a lot of it came from the former president at Oregon State, but. Um, again, uh, on a personal level, like if I was in their shoes, I'd feel so dejected. Um, and so I hope that they pull through. I hope that they find a suitable landing place where they're happy and their, their program can thrive. Um, but to the fans on Twitter that are obnoxious, like, yeah, have fun in the Mountain West. <laughs> or the pseudo Mountain West, I suppose. All right, QB, I think that will do it for this episode. We will be back in a few days to talk about the big matchup with Oregon and Washington this weekend in Vegas, as well as the other uh, conference title games of note. So we've got Iowa versus Michigan for the Big Ten title. we got Louisville versus Florida State for the ACC title. We've got Bama, Georgia for the SEC title. That one is also a, a, a playoff game like the Oregon-Washington game is. Um, Texas and Oklahoma State will battle for the Big 12 title. And then, I don't know, 10, 10 random teams I don't know will battle for the various group of five titles. And someone will win one of those and make it to the Fiesta Bowl or the Cotton Bowl or something. Yep. All right. Well, follow him at QB11SD on Twitter or X, as they're calling it now. You can follow me at Douglas TS. Please follow the show at QB11 show. We are inching closer and closer to a thousand followers. I don't know. Maybe when we hit that, we'll do something fun or cool or give away a prize or something. I don't know. Be nice. Get us there. 
And that'll do it for this episode. We'll be back in a few days. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate all of you and we will talk to you soon. Good night, everyone.